Once upon a time, in a kingdom far, far away. Maybe in a galaxy far, far away for my Star Wars nerds. But that phrase, to begin a story, started around the 1600s. And it's been used 1,380 times in over 100 different languages. Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away. So we're in a series, Longing for Home. And if you're new with us, since Easter, we've been, as a church family, reading through the Bible, through the Bible Project's 365 Days to Finding Jesus. And we've been trekking through the Old Testament, and we've been, on Sundays as well, looking at the Old Testament, finding Jesus. Where does, how would Jesus interpret passages of the Old Testament? How would he have seen it? Because the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was his Bible. He found himself, you know, prophecies about himself and so forth. And so the longing for home, we're in the, the part of the Old Testament where the children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem had been sacked by Babylon and and most of the people were taken as slaves into Babylon. So you get your books like Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, um, Esther, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. So we're just kind of taking some snapshots. We started Daniel last week, and I'm going to do another Daniel part two this morning called Kingdoms Come and Kingdoms Go. My prayer is that you would be more confident in your King Jesus and his kingdom than ever before. You'd walk away with more confidence in who he is because kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Nations rise, nations fall. Presidents come, presidents go. Governments come, governments go. It's just the the way it is. But there is one everlasting king and his kingdom that has no end. A monarchy is when a nation or a state uh, has one single person that holds all the power, all the sovereignty. And Daniel 7 talks a lot about kingdoms that, that would rise and they would fall. But then he gives us this picture of the Messiah, of the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. He barely, rarely called himself Christ or Messiah. It was always Son of Man. And if you are familiar with Daniel 7 in this term, Son of Man, it's going to blow your mind next time you read your New Testament Gospels and see Jesus saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate asks him, he says, you know, are you a king? And Jesus says, I am a king. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. That's important. That's important that when you see Jesus ushering in his kingdom, he's saying it's not like the kingdoms of this world that are all about self and and power and all these things. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And so just going to go directly through the first 14 verses of Daniel and, and see about how kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but not Jesus, not that king and not his kingdom. 
So we're going to first talk about actual historical kingdoms that are talked about in Daniel 7. The Bible gives an accurate account of prophetically of historical kingdoms. And you got to remember, Daniel, we're going to see he has a dream and he sees the future prophetically. We are looking backwards and going, yeah, we see that, we see this, we see that, that's already taken place. So here's what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, that's Nebuchadnezzar's son, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, did he maybe should have avoided the pizza that he ate the night before, he, right before he fell asleep, like... What is going on with all these beasts and descriptions? It's, it's ancient prophetic language. There's a lot of it that kind of overlaps in the book of Revelation. Uh, John uses a lot of Daniel's imagery as well. Whenever you read prophetic books in the Bible, Revelation or Daniel, Ezekiel, all these kinds of books, you got Go beyond what's said. What's the message behind the message? That's what, that's what our, our job to interpret Scripture is, is what's the message behind the message? We can get caught up in the weeds of what, are the, what were the three ribs and what's the meat and all of that, and it's get our charts out and get it all figured out. I don't think so. I think what we need to do is, how would Jesus interpret this? How did Jesus see this? Well, again, from history... We know what Daniel saw. He saw empires. He saw kingdoms rise and fall. He saw kingdoms that were going to come and go. In verse 4, the first beast is Babylon. The kingdom, the empire of Babylon. We know that Babylon uh, got taken over as well then in in the next beast, which is the Medes and the Persians. And then verse 6 is a prophecy about Greece having the empire over the world. And then verse 7 is the Roman Empire. Interesting, huh? Well, each one of these kingdoms played a part in setting the stage for Jesus. It's, you know, when Alexander the Great 
his empire, the Greek empire, took over the world, his goal was to make sure that the whole world spoke Greek. And that Greek culture would be taking over the world as well. He wanted his spread in that. He was so proud of Greek culture, let's spread it to the rest of the world by force. And let's have everybody speak Greek. But interesting in that, he has uh, the, the Greek, Greek language being the language of the world. That's what Jesus spoke. He would have spoken several languages, but he knew Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek, and the apostles spoke Greek and wrote in Greek. It was a common language that, that gave this opportunity for the world to hear about Jesus ultimately. And then Rome, in their empire, they built roads and highways and all kinds of things to make it easier to go from place to place. And then ultimately you have the apostle Paul and other missionaries spreading the gospel from Jerusalem to the known ends of the earth. So we see historical kingdoms there. And the next kingdom is the evil one's kingdom. He, said, he continues, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. That's language about Satan. The word Satan means accuser slanderer, boastful. It's, it's all these words in a negative sense. He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. In Greek, when you read the word devil in the New Testament, it's the word diablos, which means slander. I told you last week that when Paul told, the, told Timothy, he said, tell the women of the church not to diablos one another. And we translate that to slander one another. We're not to slander people or gossip about people. When we do that, we're the mouthpiece of Diablos. I know I don't want to be the mouthpiece of the devil or his talking puppet and slander someone, and neither do you. The author of evil, the evil one, is behind every evil act. There's a powers and principalities that get the hearts and minds of people who become evil. Hitler didn't wake up one day when he was a little kid and say, that's what I want to be when I grow up. No, he got duped by the evil one and the ways of this world and the powers and the principalities. And the evil one opposes the reign of God. Moving on. Now we get a glimpse into the heavenly kingdom. He gets this amazing view of what's going, what was going on in heaven. He says, I kept looking up until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The thousands upon thousands and myriads are God's divine beings or angelic creatures that he created to co-steward creation. 
They're created in his divine image. We're created in the image of God. They were created in his divine image as well. But he has these myriads upon myriads attending him, worshiping him. It's a a strange view of like a courtroom going on here. Now, there's a lot of Revelation-esque type language. When you read the first chapter of Revelation, you almost see this same kind of language about God and, and Jesus and so forth. And sometimes people will ask me, I maybe have told you this before, but people will say, well, what's your view of the end times? Are you pre, post, mid, or whatever, and I say, I'm a be readiest. <laughs> like, just be ready, because either I'm going to die and, and stand before the Lord, or he's going to come back, and I want to live my life in a way that honors him and honors his call, and, and I know you do too. So doesn't matter all the charts and, and when and how he's going to come, he's going to come again. And let's be ready. Let's live our lives in in such a way that if he came back today, we're ready. Let's live our lives in such a way that we leave a legacy behind if we go and die and, and be with him. Either way is the best way to live our life. As we keep moving on in this amazing chapter, we see the evil one's kingdom is overthrown. Is it hard to believe that the evil one's kingdom has been overthrown when you look in the world and the chaos and the wars and all that? It's hard to believe that. But again, my goal and job is to help you have more confidence in the king and his kingdom when you leave here today. says, the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. It's almost like the little horn or the the evil one is now, the books are opened. And they find the, the, the evil one kind of on trial, so to speak. And he is going to be destroyed. Every empire, every emperor has an end. That's, every kingdom has, has an end. Every nation rises and falls but has an end. How did Jesus overthrow the evil one's kingdom? Right, Because Adam and Eve let the evil one into our world when they disobeyed God, when they tried to be their own God or, or make up their own rules about what was right and wrong and determine that for themselves. And ever since then, we've been doing the same thing. So how did Jesus do it? He did it through the cross. He did it through his submission to death. And the evil one, his power was stripped his authority was stripped, but he's kind of like a, a bee that's lost its stinger. It still can scare you when it buzzes by, but if it doesn't have a stinger, it can't hurt you. I know for me, having been stung by a wasp on my ear, earlobe, you know, I hear a buzz, and I'm like, whoa, man. And it's the same thing. He's a terrorist. He's going around throwing Molotov cocktails, so to speak, to just get people at odds with one another. And, and he's a deceiver. He's an accuser. So how did he overthrow them? Well, in, there's a part in, in John's gospel where Jesus is talking to people. 
And he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father shouts from heaven and he says, I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. And Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Do you ever wonder why Jesus was cryptic sometimes? Like he would heal somebody and then he would say, um, you know, don't tell anybody. Do what the law of Moses says to do, but don't tell anybody. Why was he cryptic? Why did he teach in, in parables? And sometimes it just seems like he was a 30,000 feet above everybody else except for the ones he let in. Well, the reason is, is Jesus didn't want to let the cat out of the bag too quick about who he was. Every time somebody asked him for healing, he couldn't help himself but to do it because that's our good God. It's always there. But he also knew that the powers and principalities, they had a plan. And if they picked up too quick on who he was then it could short circuit, so to speak. So his mission was not to overthrow Rome. His mission was to overthrow the powers and principalities that were behind evil empires, that oppressed people. He was, he was coming to destroy the works of the devil, John says. The apostle Paul understood the overthrow of his king, the evil one's kingdom by the cross, He's talking about the wisdom of the world in 1 Corinthians 2 and how it didn't understand the message of the cross, which is the power of God for us who are being saved. He says, but the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. The context is the wisdom of the world. If they would have known, they, the, the devil thought he was going to win. If I can kill the Messiah, we win. This thing is done. But he had no idea that the plan of God was Jesus to come in human flesh, to live his life, to submit his life to death, and to rise on the other side, to be our victor, to get to win a victory for us over sin, death, and the evil one. So let's keep going. Let's look at the everlasting king and his kingdom. Again, the kingdoms of the world come and they go. Nations rise and they fall. Our king and his kingdom is eternal. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ushered in his kingdom, and it's growing one life at a time. One life. Every time somebody gives their allegiance to Jesus, every time they come into agreement that he's Lord and Savior, his kingdom is growing one life at a time. Sometimes we ask, well, where's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is king. That's, that's where the kingdom of God is. And it's where he's acknowledged as king. In Matthew 26, Jesus is before the high priest. And they kind of have their little kangaroo court 
trying to trap him and, and so that they could have him, the Romans crucify him. And they ask him, are you, a, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? He says, yes. And he says, you will see the son of man, just like what says in Daniel 7, coming in the clouds. And they knew he was referencing Daniel chapter 7. And it angered them so bad, they thought he was blaspheming. They punched him in the face, slapped him right across the mouth. And I I remember seeing the passion of the Christ the first time. And I'm obviously moved by the scourging and the whipping and the blood and the, the crucifixion. But I remember seeing that scene. And I thought, he just punched God in the face. And he took it. He took it. He submitted himself to evil men. Jesus said over and over and over, I'm going to have to go and die at the hands of sinful men, but I'm going to rise on the third day. And that was part of it. He punched God in the face. Jesus was receiving the wrath of humanity when he was, what happened to him on the cross. So we have a king who's an everlasting king and a kingdom, his kingdom has no end. And when he comes again the second time, it will fulfill what was started through his life, death, and resurrection, the fulfillment, the new heavens, the new earth, and will rule and reign with Christ on this earth with him forever. I want to bring some context to the kingdoms of this world that come and go to the kingdom of Jesus, which is everlasting. The kingdom of this world exercises power over the weak and the poor. They exploit the weak and the poor to get gain. That's the ways of this world. You want to know what makes God really angry when you see it in Scripture? Is when people in power exploit the weak and the poor for gain, for their own personal gain. That really stirs up God's anger. But the kingdom of Jesus is a power that serves the weak and the poor, that honors the weak and the poor, that makes room for the weak and the poor. The kingdoms of this world trust in the sword, so to speak, but the kingdom of Jesus says, put away your sword, my kingdom. His kingdom doesn't come from the sword. The kingdom of this world looks out for self-interest. It's all about self and control. The kingdom of Jesus looks out for the interests of others. Learning to deny ourselves. Learning to move from selfishness to selflessness. That's a process, but that's that's the kingdom of Jesus. It's a transformation from selfishness to selflessness. If you want to know if you're growing in the Lord and in your discipleship to Jesus, look at that thing. Am I moving less to being less selfish to being more selfless and looking out for the interests of others? The kingdom of this world finds its identity in nation, race, ideology, and even religion. It's about defending our, you know, something. It's about defending the, the identity of a people group or, or a border or whatever. And yet, 
the kingdom of Jesus finds its identity in being children of God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28, he says, no longer is it Jew or Gentile, slave or free, American or Canadian, white or black or any of this, male or female. It's we are now one in Jesus. We're one in Christ. Therefore, we can celebrate culture and we can celebrate differences in a new way of celebrating. It's not our identity, but it's an it's expression of our creator. It's not about one people group, but it's about every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not about us and them. The early church before the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as the, the religion of the empire, the early church, man, they just served one another. They mind their own business. They didn't, you know, go to wars and all this kind of stuff that Rome was about keeping people down. And then the kingdom of this world is reactionary towards their enemies. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus came and flipped that on its head in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of Jesus is their response is Christ-like to their enemies. Jesus said to not return evil with evil. Love your enemies. Love those who do harm to you. Is there a harder command in Scripture that he said than that? Our response naturally is, you hit me, I want to hit you back. You take my stuff, I'm going to take yours. That, that is the, the way of the world. It's eye for an eye. And Jesus said, no, I'm flipping that on its head. I think that's difficult. I, I think that is hard. But listen, we're disciples of Jesus. He never said, take up your, your easy chair and follow me. He said, take up your cross. Take up this instrument of death and follow me. That's not easy. Following Jesus is the greatest thing any of us can ever do. It's the greatest way of life. But it's not the easiest way of life. And then kingdoms and nations are at war with each other. The kingdom of Jesus is at war with the spiritual forces of evil that are behind all of that. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 12 He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers and authority in the spiritual realm. That's what's behind all of this stuff. It's an invisible war. So at the beginning, I said, you know, stories that start with once upon a time, they often end up with, and they lived happily ever after. Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away. They live happily ever after. In between once upon a time and they lived happily ever after is a story. It's a story of twists and turns and broken hearts and all these kinds of things that happen. It's the story of humanity. Kingdoms come and they go. Nations rise and they fall. Life brings to each one of us tests and twists and turns But thankfully, like in any good story that begins with once upon a time and they lived happily ever after, there's a triumphant king, a victor. And we have that in Jesus. The king is triumphant. We have the savior who came to undo the fall of Adam and to reverse the curse 
He did that for us in his life, death and resurrection. The very first message we did out of Genesis when we started reading the Bible, I did the message on creation. And at the end of the creation story, after God creates the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth and Adam and Eve, he says it's good. And if you remember, we said, trust the plot. The plot of the Bible in all its twists and turns It's good. God is restoring his goodness to this world, to his good world, his good creation. And Jesus began that kingdom by what he did through his life, death, and resurrection. You and I, let's trust the plot. God is good. And he's going to to resolve all of this in his time, in his way. It's not up to you and I to do that. But he promises he's going to. And for us to just be found faithful and obedient and live the kind of life that he teaches us to live in the Gospels. And what we read about in the New Testament. Have confidence in your king. Have confidence in the fulfillment of his kingdom. I'm more confident of that today than I have been. And I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. And it just gets simpler and simpler. The more I read and learn, the more I don't realize what I don't know. But the more I know he loves me and he loves you. Will you stand with me? I thought as I was preparing this, the best way we could respond to a message about the king and his kingdom is to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray known as the Lord's Prayer. And... The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. So let's pray this out loud together. It's on your screen if you don't know it by heart. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If sometimes you struggle on how to pray, take the Lord's Prayer Monday through Friday and just divide it up into those five rhythms that are there. And you'll find you can pray all kinds of things for for people, yourself, or our nation, and our church. So Father, as we go from here today, we go trusting in you, your kingdom, Lord Jesus, your power, your love. Thank you for filling us fresh and new with your spirit this morning. We leave here confident in our triumphant king and we humble ourselves before you. And say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for giving us your Son and your Holy Spirit to permanently be with us. God, I pray for anyone who's struggling in their faith, that you would open their spiritual eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, to see the love of the Father in the face of Jesus to know that you're good. In your name I pray, amen.